kick off the new year here in 2020, we are in the future, right? Who thought, whoever thought we would get here, right? Here we are, and um, nothing has ever made me feel older uh, than 2020 for some reason. And uh, I came across some stuff uh, this weekend on social media that I just thought would bless you um, about this new year. Um, did you know this morning that if you are 35, right, or older, you were born closer to 1940 than today? Um, if you're sick, <laughs> happy new year. Um, I'm with you there. If you're 60 or older, you were born closer to the 1800s than today. I should duck. <laughs> I don't know. I feel, like I, I feel like I should duck on that one. <laughs> Did you know that Y2K, you remember Y2K? Yeah, it was, that was 20 years ago. It's closer to the 1970s than it is to today. Here was my favorite one, the Wonder Years. You remember the Wonder Years? Some of you don't remember the Wonder Years, but... The Wonder Years, as you might remember, the TV show, Fred Savage, was set in 1968 through 1973. It aired in the years 1988 through 93. I didn't watch it back then. It seemed kind of boring to me. But I remember it always seemed kind of like long ago, right? It seemed so old-fashioned when you'd see the way they would dress and all that sort of stuff. Well, if it was redone today and recast in the same time frame, aired the next five years, it would be based on the years 2000 through 2005, right? Mm. So the point is, we're all old. Um, 2020, it's here, right? It just, it's this, man, time is flying by. And so there's only one time in the history of the world that I could title a message what I've titled it this morning. So I figured even if it's a little bit cheesy, I've got to embrace it because this only comes around literally once. And so we're going to talk this morning about 2020 vision in a 2020 world uh, because we can. Um, and so I was like, what better way to title it? You know, I, uh, I've got really poor vision um, with my eyes here. Um, I, uh, I've, I've, I've had to wear glasses or contacts since I was, I don't know, 12, 13 years old. And, um, and I'm actually having some, I've, some vision problems this morning, some contact problems this morning. And one of my least favorite things is to go to the eye doctor. And I have to go every, I think it's every two years or something like that. It is now that your prescription lasts. And, and here's why I hate the eye doctor, uh, going to the eye doctor, not eye doctors in particular, if anybody, you know, how's anybody in that field, but um, two reasons. One, the, the first one is the glaucoma test. Um, I would just assume have a camel spit in my eye is to stand there and not know when, but somehow at some point somebody's going to blow wind into my eye. I hate it. I, it just it drives me nuts. That is my least favorite thing. I'm nervous and twitchy the whole time, and, uh, and so I hate that. That's, that's number one. The second thing I, have to, I hate is they always have to dilate my eyes. Uh, I, have, I have some stigmatism and things of that nature, so when they get in there and they're trying to look at things and they're shining a light in your eyes, my eyes just start watering and I can't keep them open, so they always dilate uh, my eyes, which means I get to wear the big, you know, um, the big, I don't know, RoboCop sunglasses um, when I leave there and get a headache for the remainder of the day, and so those are the reasons I don't like the eye doctor. What I do like about the eye doctor is, man, I leave there with that prescription, and when I pop those nice fresh contacts in my eyes or put those glasses on my face, um, things are way different. If I didn't have my contacts in this morning, I don't know, I wouldn't be certain that my wife is sitting on the front row, okay? That's, that's how bad my eyes are, and so I've got pretty bad, pretty bad, pretty bad vision, so I love the corrective lenses, and what that does for me, it radically, for me, it radically changes my life, okay? And so if I lived in a time where we didn't have that sort of stuff, I would be in bad shape. Y'all would be leading me around the, the, by the hand all the time, and I would have to learn to preach without notes. And so and I don't really want to have to learn all that again, because I wouldn't be able to read them very well up here without that. And at the end of the day, um, clear vision is very important, but not just physically. 
That's very important in life in, in general. And, you know, just as I'd be a mess physically um, if I didn't have clear vision because of contacts and corrective lenses and things of that nature, um, we're all going to be in a big bad mess um, if we go into any year um, and, and live our life without very clear vision of some very important things. There are just some things. And I'm, when, I talk, when I'm talking about vision this morning, I'm not really talking about it in the sense of you need a vision for your future, okay? I'm simply talking about, spiritually speaking, we need to be able to see things very clearly, okay? We need to be able to see things very clearly. And I want us to have a clear vision of some things in particular as we head into 2020 so that we can approach it both personally and corporately with passion and purpose. I want us to have clarity as we go into this year, uh, as we want to see God work in our lives and in our families and in our places of work, in our community, in our city, and in our church. And so today we're going to look at the first disciples and a learning opportunity that they got to have a little bit, I think, that helped clarify some vision for them. And, um, and I think there's some things that we can learn as we look at these two stories that we're going to look at in Matthew chapter 17. There's a couple of stories that we're going to look at that's going to help us, I think, be able to, to see some things more clearly. It's going to remind us of some things as we go into the new year, that we, things we need to be seeing clearly in if we want to do God's will, if we want to be used by God, if we want to make an impact in 2020, uh, we need very clear vision um, in this culture that we're living in. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 21, and this is the story of the Mount of Transfiguration, if you're familiar with the New Testament, when, when we're going to read about when the three of the disciples got to go up on a mountain and see Jesus in all his glory right? See him revealed for who he really is. And then they're going to come down from that mountain, and we're going to get a second story of a valley scene, if you will, at the bottom of that mountain um, that is a much different picture. And, and in these two pictures, there's a lot for us to learn because it's really just the, the, the second picture. The first picture is kind of a scene of really what we're made for, which is beholding the glory of God. And, and, the, and the second picture is really a scene of the world that we live in, which is a, a big marred up mess, all right, that we're called to live and do service in. And uh, it's a lot like our world today. So look with me at Matthew chapter 17, starting in verse 1. We're going to kind of take it chunk by chunk this morning. And so look with me down through verse 8. Matthew writes, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, uh, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. In verse 6, it says, When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So let's pause there before we go any further and talk a little bit about what's going on here in this passage. You see a key word here in these first eight verses is the word transformed. What is that? What's going on here? Jesus was transfigured before their eyes. And that, that word there in the Greek is where we get our word metamorphosis. It's, the, it's where we get our word for that. It's, it speaks to a transformation on the outside that comes from the inside. It's, a, it's a, this inside outward kind of deal. What's happening here is who Jesus really is, is being revealed to them outwardly. And so Jesus' glory has been veiled, if you will, up until this point from them. 
And they saw him as a man, even though he was also fully God. But here they are allowed to see him as God. He no longer looked ordinary. He looked divine, right? And so they behold him in his glory. And what's happening is they're getting a preview of the second coming, right? The first coming, uh, Jesus comes, right, born of a manger. We just celebrated Christmas. The God-man, he comes to suffer and to be a servant. And in the second coming, he's coming back gloriously robed in white to, to conquer and to rule and to reign. And, and so then that's the second coming. And they're getting a preview. It's kind of like a movie trailer, right? I love movie trailers. I remember I, I used to love to go to the movies and get there early and, um, and just watch 20 minutes of movie trailers. And that was about worth the price of admission for me. I just love movie trailers. Well, now, you know, we don't go as often, but... Um, we went to the movies uh, a while back you know, when Star Wars came, uh, first came out a couple of weeks ago. And um, we're watching the trailers. We look at each other and we say, we've seen all these, right? Because YouTube, right? And so we've seen all the trailers already before. It gets, so it's kind of took a little bit away from that. But a really good trailer does what? A really good trailer makes you want to see the movie. Right? And so uh, no matter what you think about some movies, some movies like the Star Wars ones, for instance, do, they just do really good trailers, right? And so a trailer that's really well done makes you want to see the movie. You may not like the movie, but you really want to see it because the trailer was well done. Well, they're kind of getting the trailer here. It, if anything, it would have made them long for the second coming. It should make, when we read this, it should make us long for the second coming. It's just a glimpse. It's just a little, it's just a little snippet of what is to come as we await the full picture of Jesus coming and a new heaven and a new earth and Jesus ruling and reigning in all of his glory. It says his face was like the sun and his clothes were white as light. And the idea here is that Jesus isn't reflecting these things. He's emanating, he's producing these things. One commentator suggests it points to his glory and his sovereignty and his purity. And they are seeing Jesus as the Holy One. They, they, they are seeing Jesus like his father sees him. And like all will one day see him, but they're getting a snippet right here in this moment. Now, notice who's with Jesus in this scene, Elijah and Moses. And people debate why Elijah and Moses are there. And it's likely, most likely, I believe, that they are representative of the prophets and the law, which kind of sums up the Old Testament. And Jesus said that was what ultimately about him. And you might remember in the Old Testament, Moses had his own experience with the glory of God. Moses had this experience where God passed before him, right, on a mountain, and he's not allowed to see God's face, if you'll remember, because he would die if he was to see God's face, and, and so he just gets a taste, he just gets a glimpse, and then this happens after Moses gets that glimpse of God's glory in Exodus, in Exodus 34, 29, it says this, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets, right, the Ten Commandments of the Testimony, in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. So there was this, this light that kind of reflected off of Moses because he had been talking with God. And the point here is, that I'm making is this. In this scene, we see Moses and we see Jesus emanating, producing this light because where Moses reflected the Lord's glory, his face was bright and shining because of who he met with. Jesus was producing this light. He was shining simply because of who he is. Moses reflected the glory of God. Jesus clearly reveals the glory of God to us and to others and to them on that mountain. And Moses and Elijah here representing the law and the prophets that all point us to Jesus um, is this, uh, is this uh, incredible picture of all this coming together there on the mountain for them. And when it's all over, you'll notice only Jesus is left. It, you know, they're, they're, all, they're all talking there for a moment and then they're gone. 
And you're left with Jesus that's standing there in his glory. And Luke says that while they're standing there talking, that in Luke's gospel about this story, he says they're talking about Jesus' departure. So Matthew doesn't tell us, Mark don't tell us what they're talking about. But Luke says, well, actually what they're talking about is Jesus' departure. In other words, they're talking about his death. They're talking about his resurrection. And they're talking about his ascension. And the law... Right? The law, the Mosaic law, had demanded a sacrifice. It had demanded a perfect sacrifice. And the sacrificial laws and ceremonies pointed ultimately to Jesus who had come to fulfill the law. The prophets, represented by Elijah, had prophesied that one would come and suffer and take away sin. And Jesus is the fulfillment, right, of the law and of the prophets. And so they're there, I believe they're discussing all that right there, as, 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 as Luke tells us. And right before this scene, right before this scene, in both Matthew and Mark, you can see this. Uh, you have uh, Jesus ask the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some say John the Baptist, some say this, some say a prophet. And Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? Because, right, that's what's most important is not what other people think, but what you say, Jesus, who Jesus is. And Peter gives the, what is called the, this great confession, right? He says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And then, just a few verses later, we get this scene. And the full reality of Jesus' identity on display. And what we're seeing here, and what Matthew and Mark are showing us, and Luke, and what they're showing us is that the full reality of who Christ is, they're starting to see Christ more, more clearly. They're starting to understand more and more about who Jesus is and the implications of that for their lives. And in Mark's telling of this story, he builds to this moment, showing how the disciples over and over again are slow to get it, right? Jesus tells them something and they just don't get it. Jesus does a miracle right before this one in Mark's story where he heals a blind man in two stages. Do you remember that miracle? Jesus spits in some mud and rubs it in his eyes and the guy goes from blind and now he says, well, I can see, but things seem kind of blurry. And then he, he does a little something else and now the guy can see clearly. And if, you, if you've ever read that story, you're thinking, well, did you, what, why, could Jesus just not do it right the first time? Like, why is he healing him in stages? Well, it, it, he's doing it. It's a parable. All right, it's, it's a kind of a miracle parable. And just as a, this, what it, it's, it's showing just in the same way how the disciples are cl- slowly coming to understand more and more clearly who Jesus really is and what that really means. And, and then we get this picture of Jesus in all of his glory, the authoritative, sovereign, glorious king of kings standing there on that mountain for Peter, James, and John, John to see. And we see Peter here, he wants to build three tents, right? So they can all hang out for a while and spend some time. It's good, we're here, we hang out, this is great. And Peter had a tendency to not know when to be quiet, and um, sometimes we're all that person. And, but here, he's told basically to be quiet and listen, right? He said, the, the, the Father speaks from heaven and says, this is my Son, the unique Son of God. You need to listen to Him. And that word carries the idea of obeying Him and following Him. It's not just hear what He says, it's, it's take it to heart and to life, Now pick up with me in verse 9. It says, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elisha does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So they're coming down the mountain and the disciples have questions, right? And the questions are around Elijah and that makes sense because they've just seen 
Elijah. And it was prophesied in Malachi that Elijah would come and restore all things, right? Uh, and then it, but they just saw a glimpse of Elijah, and now he's gone, so they're confused. What's, what's happening here? And Jesus clarifies that in the sense of the prophets have spoken, that Elijah has already come, and Jesus is teaching that John the Baptist, he was a type of Elijah, not literally Elijah, but he was a type of Elijah who came to prepare the way, and that was that ministry of restoration, and his death was a pointing to the fact that the Messiah would die too, a foreshadowing of that. But just as they mistreated John the Baptist, they would mistreat the Messiah. And in this conversation, Jesus points them back to the cross twice, right? He says, I'm going to be raised from the dead. And he says, I'm going to suffer at their hands. And so before they can enjoy what they had just experienced permanently, Jesus must suffer temporarily. So after this glorious scene on the mountain, they come down the valley and they get a different scene, a difficult, painful scene, starting in verse 14. It says, when they came to the crowd... A man came up to him, up to Jesus, and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For he often, often he falls into the fire and and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said why could we not cast it out and he said to them because of your little faith for truly I say to you if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed you will say to this mountain move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you you know there's a famous picture by the famed artist Raphael called the transfiguration In his picture, he was so captivated by the contrast in these scenes that even though he called it the transfiguration, he puts both scenes. You've got this incredible picture of the transfiguration, then at the bottom, you've got this this scene, this stark contrast of failing disciples and a a demonically oppressed and possessed child and sickness and 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 a father who's broken and weeping and, I mean, just this difficult scene at the bottom and he was so captivated by it he put them both in his painting if you can imagine being Peter or James or John and leaving that perfect moment on the mountain to come back to this that had to be a pretty stark reality you basically just experience a little taste of heaven on earth you come down to the mountain and you experience a little bit of what feels like hell on earth and that and that's that's the contrast that they get here and some people call this picture we get at the bottom we got the Mount of Transfiguration. They call it the Valley of Service, right? Because this is where we live. This is where we do life. This is the real world. A suffering boy, a broken-hearted dad, demonic activity. Now, in this particular case, a demon was behind all this. It's not always or even usually the case, but it's the case in this particular scene. And we have disciples failing. We have faithless people as Jesus rebukes them for their faithlessness. He, and sin, he talks about a twisted generation. And it's just this picture of our fallen world. And notice what Jesus says. He's, he, he rebukes them as a, a faithless generation. In this moment, he seems to even be including the disciples in this. As their faith is, is inadequate in this scene. They're, they're fu- refusing really to trust God fully in, in when they're performing this miracle. But, but Jesus was patient with them as he's patient with us, right? They weren't perfect and, and we're not perfect and, and, we, and we fail as well. And, but what we see is what's being revealed in these scenes is there's only, there's only one king, there's only one holy one on that mountain, and there's only one hero in that valley. 
Uh, Jesus is the star of both scenes. In one scene, it's be quiet and listen to him. He's my son. In the other scene, he's the only one that can bring healing and, and, and release this child um, from this bondage. But the disciples' problem, Jesus says, is little faith. Now, in Mark, he says they needed to pray. We get two different accounts here. Because faith and prayer kind of gives, together we get a holistic account of, of what took place. Faith and prayer go hand in hand. In their own power, the disciples were powerless. They apparently had become self-reliant, maybe even mechanical and going through the motions and what they were doing. You might remember just a few chapters before this in Matthew, around chapter 10, Jesus has already sent them out to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to do all this kind of stuff. He's empowered them and released them to go in his name and to do this kind of ministry, the very kind of ministry that they failed to do. And here we are, seven chapters later, and, they're, and they can't do it. They were not operating in faith-filled prayer. They were operating in their power, not God's power. And notice the, there's, an, there's a word of encouragement from Jesus here. All they need is a little mustard seed-sized faith. It's not so much about the amount. It's mainly about the object. And it, their faith needs to be in God. It needs to be in Christ. And when we step back and look at these two scenes, we see an incredible learning time, especially for Peter, James, and John. They had seen Jesus in all his glory and the world in all its misery in back-to-back scenes. And they had a huge faith moment on the mountain. And then they come back and they see, what? People failing to exercise faith properly and being incompetent to do the ministry that they had been called to do. And I think when we see these two scenes together, we get a picture of what and who we need to see clearly if we're to, like the disciples ultimately went on to do, make a huge impact on our world. And so there's three things we need to see clearly this passage teaches us. The first one is we need to see Jesus clearly. We need to see Jesus clearly. Like the disciples, we need to see and understand that Jesus is the unique, sovereign, holy, glorious Son of God, that there's no one like him, that that he stands alone. And, And listen, personal transformation, personal transformation in your life and in my life happens as we behold Jesus more clearly, more and more. That's how it happens. The the more clearly we see and behold Christ through his word, the more God changes our hearts and our lives. The the word for transformation in our text is used also in two other texts in the New Testament, Romans 12.2 and 2 Corinthians 3.18. I've I've quoted this multiple times because it's so important to understand about how life change works in the Christian life. So let me read them to you. Again, Romans 12.2. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So you see there, be transformed by what? The renewal of your mind. That's the same word as when Jesus was transfigured before them, that metaphor, meta, uh, meta, uh, metamorphosis that takes place where you're changed from the inside out, right? Where, where, we, where what, who we are on the inside is being made new in Christ, begins to manifest more and more on the outside for the world around us. That happens through the renewal of our mind. Well, over in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, Paul says this. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So transformation happens as your mind is renewed by the Spirit, right? And transformation happens as you behold the glory of the Lord Jesus, And the way both of those things happen is by engaging the word of God so as you can better see and savor Jesus Christ and all of his attributes and who he is and what he's done and what he's doing. And as we do those things, 
We're transformed as our minds are renewed more and more as we behold Christ through the Word. See, if we walk away from the Bible when we read it or when it's preached, and all we get are some principles for living life, and we don't see Jesus more clearly, we have failed to read the Bible and study the Bible properly. Uh, No matter where we're at in the Bible, at the end of the day, we should be making a line to Jesus because it's all ultimately pointing us to him and trying to get us to trust him and to become more like him. The Bible's about Jesus, and the Christian life is about becoming more like Jesus and winning people to Jesus. He's at the center of the story and is at the center of our transformation, should be at the center of our lives. And victorious Christian living begins with seeing and savoring the victorious risen Christ more and more through his word. See, and we, you and I, can't be agents of transformation in our world unless we're first subjects of transformation, right? Unless we can't bring change if we're not being changed, right? The more and more as we become like Christ, we can become agents of transformation in our families, in our communities. We have to behold Christ. So what you and I need in 2020 is not simply a pep talk or another self-help book. We need to see Jesus more clearly. We need to know and recall every day the glory of Christ. We can't do that if we're not in his word. Remember, the transfiguration points us to the return of Christ. It's it's the trailer for the movie. And we need to remember Jesus is coming back into this broken world in all of his glory. He's coming to judge this world. He's coming to transform this world. And until then, we need to be in the business of serving him with our eyes fixed on him. We need to see Jesus clearly. But we also... If we're going to be used mightily by God, we need to see our world clearly. We need to see the world clearly. We live in a broken and sinful world. And just like we see in the valley scene, we have suffering and sickness and faithlessness. It's a twisted generation, as Jesus calls it. And there's an enemy who's at work to bring hurt and to bring pain just like there was then. You know, the world today is not a lot different in many ways than it was for those first century disciples. You know, technology's advanced, but humanity continues to devolve more and more into sin. In our culture, we may not see as many outward signs of demonic activity, but the devil's just as much at work today as he was then. If you turn on the news, or maybe don't, in our own culture, we see people confused, hurting, angry, divided. The world we live in is filled with perverseness, violence, sin, sickness, war, poverty. It's a broken place, just like it was then. You know, I wonder if we ask the guys, that we have some guys here that work at the rescue mission, are there, still, are there still homeless people to serve here in Orlando? Still, still, still homeless people to serve here in Orlando? I wonder, you know, we, we have a partnership with Thrive Pregnancy Center. I wonder if there's still people seeking abortion in Orlando. I, I, bet, there, I bet there are. Yeah, I mean, the world's just as broken now as, it, as it's ever, ever been. We live in a, a dark and broken world. I wonder if any families in Baldwin Park got divorced in 2019. bet they did. Bet they did. I wonder if any new addictions were developed in 2019. Bet they were. Uh, our city is filled with hurt and brokenness and loneliness. We got to wake up to the reality of the world around us. You know, I think it's really easy for us to get so boxed into our own world that when things are going well for us, we can kind of forget why things are like for a lot of people. And we all go through seasons where things are better and things are worse and things. It's kind of like kids, you know. Uh, we kind of work hard to protect children from certain things. They know the world's a scary place and things like that, but they don't, there's a certain age where a, your first family member dies. 
or something like that, or somebody gets really sick and you just kind of have to talk about it, that, that for kids it's kind of this awakening moment of, wow, the, the world's a, a scary place. Bad things actually do happen. And it's easy for us, if we're not careful, to kind of walk around like naive children, to be so focused on our circle that as long as things are okay in that circle and within that direct circle, we forget about those that are even in our church family or in our community who are really hurting, who are really hurting. We need to discipline ourselves to open our eyes and to see the world around us clearly. See the world around us clearly. I mean, the disciples, when Jesus was training them for those three years, he constantly introduced them to the, the, this, the darkness that was in the world. He didn't shy away from, from just the depravity that they saw and the hard-heartedness that they saw and the demonic activity that they saw because that was reality, and they were going to have to minister in the midst of that. And We work really hard in our culture to shelter ourselves from a lot of these things. It's the very world God calls us into, and we can't minister effectively in our families, in our communities, in our workplace, in our city if we don't have a clear vision of what this world is really like. But we know it, but we have to view it as an opportunity. You know, Jesus came down that, down that mountain to a real mess. <laughs> but what did he do? He ministered to the child and to his dad. He called out the sin and faithlessness that was present. He revealed himself as the answer to their need. He taught his disciples and encouraged them to walk by faith. In, in a similar way, our world needs us to engage in ministry to the hurting. It needs us to point to Jesus as the only true answer to the deepest needs that they have. And it just to grow in our faith and disciples others to walk by faith in Christ. But we won't do this if we don't recognize the problem and our role and the opportunity that's presented to us to glorify Christ in the midst of this world. We have a responsibility to represent Christ. So we need to see this world clearly. And finally, we need to see ourselves clearly. Uh, we need to get a, a real clear picture of who we are and what we're called to do. You know, we're a lot like the disciples in these scenes. Peter's talking when he should be listening. The other nine are unable to fulfill their calling because they're not operating in faith. I identify with that. Like those disciples, apart from walking by faith, we too just make a bigger mess of things sometimes. But Jesus said in John 15, what? Apart from me, you can do some things. Apart from me, you can do things 80% well. Apart from me, you can do most things. Apart from me, you can get by. No, he said, apart from me, you can do absolutely nothing. There's no spiritually fruitful good thing you can do apart from Christ. And we need to be aware of that reality. We, we need to be aware that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. That's what the disciples were learning. We need to be a people who, like the disciples, learn to listen to Jesus, as the Father said on the mountain. We need to be in the word, obeying, following Jesus, realizing that we're not the hero, that Christ is the hero. We need to be a people in 2020 who see Jesus clearly for who he is, obey his voice, obey his word, focused on listening to him because we know apart from him we can do nothing. And we need to be a people who operate in faith. Notice the disciples, they're rebuked for not walking in faith, but Jesus says if they would operate in faith, they'd move mountains. And the point is, they'd be able to do what God has willed and called them to do. This is not some goofy verse. It's not some magic verse or something like that. It's not what it is. 
The, the point is, the obstacle, mountains represent obstacles, and the obstacle that's in front of you, the obstacles that will be presented to you in this world, you, you'll be able to push through that and move through that and accomplish whatever it is God wants you to accomplish if you operate by faith. But you can't walk in the will of God and accomplish the purpose and plan of God for your life if you don't operate by faith. That's just the way God works. It is the funnel through which God pours his blessings and God pours his grace. He wants us to operate by faith. You know, I don't know all of God's will for your life, but I do know that you can't walk in it except for by faith, whatever it may be. You have to trust God. You have to depend on him, and you have to have confidence in him. And if we as individuals and as the church are going to make an impact in our broken communities, in our families, in our neighborhoods in 2020, we have to operate by faith. It is faith-filled it's, 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 it's faith-filled ministry that moves mountains, the obstacles that gets in our way. We have to operate by faith in Christ. And we need to approach 2020 with the faith that we're called to and be the people God called us to be. So we need to walk by faith, whether it's we're, we're ministering to our coworkers, whether we're making decisions for our family, whether we're making decisions about our finances, whether we're doing ministry in our neighborhood, whatever it may be, whether it's that person that we're praying for, we're trying to, to win to Christ, whatever it is, we need to operate by faith that it's not about us, it's about Christ, and that we are powerless apart from him, that only he can do this, and that he will do what he says he will do. We need to walk by faith in our parenting, believing God's word is better to direct our family than our gut, than our instincts. We need to steward our income like we believe God. And North Park as a church, if we want to make a bean's worth of difference in Orlando in 2019 and beyond, we need to be a people of faith. And that will manifest itself in prayer. I mean, I mean you don't, if, if we don't really pray, I mean, not really pray, then we don't really believe God. Faith and prayer are connected. Praying people are faith-filled people. Faith-filled people are praying people. Prayerless people are faithless people. They go together. And it will manifest itself in confidence in Christ and it will manifest itself in our willingness to make bold decisions for the sake of the mission and to refuse to accept the status quo. That's what faith will look like in 2020. Maybe this morning, the first thing though you need to do is is to see clearly about yourself. Maybe you're here this morning and, and maybe you say, you know, I see the twisted generation around us, I see the brokenness, but maybe in your own life you've yet to come to the realization of your own need for Christ. And maybe this morning you need to hear that, that only Jesus can rescue you from your sin and from your shame and from your guilt. We don't need to forget this morning that the glorious Lord who was revealed on that mountain went to a cruel cross on Mount Golgotha, that, that the exalted king suffered as the lamb, that the glorious Lord Jesus took on the sin of the world and suffered in our place so that we could know God and see his face and not die. Because Jesus experienced suffering, we can experience glory. Did you know that this morning? Have you trusted Christ? Have you, have you looked to him as your only hope of heaven, putting your faith in him and what he did for you in his death, burial, and resurrection? That, maybe that's the first thing you need to see about yourself this morning or maybe today as a Christ follower, you need to listen to Jesus and take the next step of faith for you. Maybe for, for you that's baptism. We've got people in our church family that I'm sure of, every church has them, that have expressed faith in Christ, but have yet to take that next step of baptism. Sometimes that's because we're not real sure if we've, if we've really made that first decision of trusting Christ. Well, maybe 2020 needs to, maybe need to kick off that year with this being the year you nail that down 
you cross the line of faith, and then you follow Christ in believer's baptism. Maybe today, as a believer, you just need to commit to walking by faith in 2020. Seeing Jesus clearly for who he is, seeing the world around us for what it is, seeing yourself for who you are, saying, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get in the word this year. I'm going to behold Christ. I'm going to follow Christ, and I'm going to go out in this ugly, messed up world. And into my messed up family and into my messed up workplace and I'm going to represent Christ and I'm going to point people to Jesus knowing that it's only by faith in him and by trusting him that I can accomplish any difference whatsoever. But knowing, man, by faith in him, we can see mountains moved in our families. We can see mountains moved in our communities. We can see mountains moved in our cities. Let's pray.